1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural podcast of new books in historical biography. My name is Mark Klobus and I'm the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Broers about his new book, Napoleon, Soldier of Destiny. Michael, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. Hello.
1: Hello. <laughs> Michael, I wonder if you uh, could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and what brought you to the field of French history and specifically Napoleonic studies.
0: Sure thing. I was born in Stamford, Connecticut, although you'll never believe that from my accent. Uh, I grew up mostly in, in Ireland, I uh, went to high school there and um, obviously I'm a graduate of Oxford University and I now teach there. Um, I really um, I became interested in French history, For oh, really I can't re- remember because my grandmother was French and uh, we used to go on vacation there quite a lot. Uh, I true to love the country and the language, although actually by trade I'm an Italian historian. Um, that's where I, I really began history, but um, as a professional, I did um, an upper level course in the French Revolution um, as an undergraduate and uh, I've been with it ever since really. I sort of moved into Napoleonic history um, because there was a feeling that, and I think it's it's still true that the marvelous archives of that period that no one had really exploited properly because when I began um, in the late 70s working on this, late 70s, early 80s, Napoleonic history was dominated either by geography or by military history and it was really um, part of my ambition to to begin a a complete rewriting of the period to embrace Napoleon's achievements um, as a statesman. to look at the, the history of Europe under Napoleon in a kind of imperial and even colonial context and that's still what I'm doing.
1: And how does this uh, biography fit into that?
0: Well, it's quite ironic really. I, I always swore I would not write a life of Napoleon. Uh, most of my work has been first of all about the French occupation of Italy under Napoleon Looking at that as an imperial experience, um, looking at, um, you know, the experience of ordinary Italians under Napoleonic rule, how it changed the country, and latterly extending that kind of methodology to other parts of Europe. But um, for the last several years, the last 10 years or so, the Fondation Napoleon in, in Paris have been very busy producing an entirely new version of Napoleon's personal correspondence which is still ongoing, we're up to 1812 at the minute. And when a major British publisher came to me and said, uh, would I be interested in writing a multi-volume life of Napoleon? Um, I said, well, what would lure me into it is this incredible new res- uh, resource, the correspondence, which we've never had before. And um, really that's what spurred me to do it.
1: Have we never had a Collection of Napoleon correspondence until now.
0: Well, yes, we have, but it's quite an interesting story. Um, there is a about a 17-volume, I think, version of his correspondence, but it was brought together and published in the late 1850s and early 1860s by his nephew, um, the Emperor Napoleon III. So it's rather like George W. Bush had compiled his father's correspondence or is this sort of Bobby Kennedy had compiled Jack's correspondence. You know, when you, you won't find the name Marilyn Monroe in at once. That's that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's highly sanitized. It's very selective. And it's something that people who work on the field know is there, but not there. But this new correspondence um, is, as it were, unplugged. Um, it's, three, it's going to be three and a half times longer than the original by the time it's finished, possibly more. And to be fair, um, in the mid 19th century, uh, people didn't have the scholarly resources and tools they have now. Um, this team at the Fondation Napoléon, marvelous people headed up by Thierry Nolens and Peter Hicks, have scoured the world for letters by Napoleon. In fact, some of the most um, galvanizing stuff we found was in the Pier Point Morgan Foundation in New York. Um, <laughs> there's been really? stuff turned out, private foundations all over the world. Um, the the family, for example, the, the, the Polish noble family of, of his uh, mistress, Maria Valeska opened the doors of the, his letters to her, to the Fondation, which they never did um, to the, you know, to the under the the, the Second Empire to Napoleon III's team and, and other scholars. They're the first ones to have got in there and looked at this relationship closely. But there's lots of other stuff quarried out of the French National Archives, um, out of the Army Archives in Paris, which, as you can imagine, is an incredible resource for Napoleon places that the original team just didn't or couldn't go.
1: And how has this uh, for you, and in, in terms of the biography, changed uh, the uh, the picture of Napoleon Bonaparte, especially in the years between his birth and uh, when you uh, conclude the book uh, at, the beginning of 18, at the end of 1805?
0: Well, one of the most interesting things about it, and I'm finding this even more actually as I work on Volume 2, is Obviously, like any great public man, uh, any master of spin, Napoleon is very conscious of his own image. You know, um, he's very careful um, about what he says most of the time. But you can't do that all the time. And this new correspondence is actually more like listening to someone's, you know, tapping someone's phone, or you know, being able to get into their SMSs, kind of thing. Um, And I think you get a lot closer to the character of the man following him at times, minute by minute, day by day, when he's under pressure. Um, and in fact, what you find a lot of the time um, is a very cautious man, um, is uh, someone who knows how to handle people very well. Obviously, there are the outbursts of temper, and that makes the headlines, as it were. But you know, this is somebody who knows how to deal with people, who keeps his finger on the pulse, um who very seldom gets carried away um when he's under pressure and i think that's an important thing to you know to realize to get to know um looking at the early years in particular um i think some of the the findings have been very significant um there's always been a kind of a myth put around for example um that napoleon had a very difficult relationship with his father um, the fact that say um he came to feel ashamed of his father abandoning the cause of the call- Corsica, uh, the cause of Corsican independence um to to- uh, to collaborate with the French that he sent him off to military school in paris and really, when you look at the 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 letters even from the early years, this isn't so um when his father died suddenly when Napoleon was a teenager, a young teenager um you find I think two important things about the man in in that correspondence that's that they've been able to amass that we haven't really seen before. One is someone who was determined to preserve his father's legacy and memory um who defended his reputation to the hilt um and the other is a very, very brave young man who was not afraid, even at that early age, of taking responsibility. He was, the, the, even as a teenager, he was writing to senior members of the French government, very senior ministers of the Crown, demanding what what his father was owed, not just in terms of money, but in demanding support for the various uh, projects for civic improvement that his father had undertaken in the Corsican um, city of Ajaccio, where they all came from. Um, You're know, someone who's not afraid even at that age, to speak up, there are an awful lot of um, you know silly legends told about Napoleon as a child, you know, like there were about Washington and Lincoln. You know, he's he's what um, Shelby Foote called a marble man, you know, and myths mm-hmm. go around him. Like you know, he first showed his military prowess when he organized a snowball fight at <laughs> school and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, and everybody's told has taken it with a pinch of salt. But this is the real thing from these letters. You don't have to invent stories, um, you know, mythical stories about him. This was a very courageous young man with a real sense of responsibility. And it must be said, incredible (laughs) self-confidence.
1: One of the things that I was uh, struck by in what you said was how uh, as a very young age, uh, Napoleon's writing these letters to uh, the government in France i was wondering if you could speak to uh, a bit to the the family dynamic as it as it uh played out in his early years after all he was not the uh, eldest child that was uh and and such letters would typically be seen i would think as the responsibility of the eldest child once his father passed away what was going on there
0: yes indeed um i mean joseph the elder brother was a very urbane very amiable man uh, he'd been trained for the priesthood of course though he never he, he abandoned never became one but he wasn't the natural leader. And I think Napoleon sees that very quickly. You know, that he, if anybody's going to do anything, it has to be him because you know, Joseph is, is not a mover and shaker. Um, he's not one to shoulder responsibility and take the blows. Napoleon sees that very quickly and does so. But that doesn't mean they weren't a tight-knit, close-knit family. Um, I think one of the saddest things about the trajectory of his life is that that he comes from a very happy, very settled, close family, and you know you watch the sort of rise to power. It's it's like a soap opera, really. Um, you you watch the rise to power tear them apart and turn them against each other. But I mean, at the beginning, Napoleon sees that he has to step into that breach because, for all Joseph's many qualities, he's not a leader. Napoleon is. Um, they're they're a typical family, really. In a sense, they're a typical. Italian provincial middle class family in so many ways, because you've got to remember that Corsica um, really was much more part of Italy than it was part of France, even after it becomes part of France, um, shortly before Napoleon's born. Um, And there's something else, actually, that comes out of both the, the letters and a lot of very recent important work done on the family from local archives in Corsica. By a marvellous um, team of, of, of historians there, um, led by uh, Michel Végey Franceschini, that um, Corsica is not a simple place. You know, it, you can't just talk about Corsica in this period any more than you can talk about a region of Italy. It's subdivided, and there are two Corsicas. There's a Corsica of what they call the interior of the mountains, um, and that's. A stereotype that's often fixed to Napoleon. People think of the, this is the real as the whole of Corsica. That you know it's a primitive country full of shepherds, mafiosi, clan warfare, vendetta culture. Whereas the main towns of Corsica on the coast, Ajaccio, Bastia, were founded by the Ligurians, by the Genoese. Uh, Ajaccio, where Napoleon comes from, in fact, founded in 1492, um, and the people there are almost all the descendants. Of the Genoese settlers, um, they look on the people of the interior as barbarians. They see themselves as Italian, as urban. Napoleon comes out of that culture. His father was the most successful lawyer in a jack show in his day. And Napoleon said the thing that he almost took most pride in was his ability to get people to settle reasonably amicably out of court. And that people were meant to be brought together by the law, not divided by it. You know, And this real anathema to them of vendetta culture, and I think that leaves a very deep mark on napoleon, and you can see it really when he becomes um emperor of western europe really his his desire to tame these wild mountain peripheries um be it in italy um, be it in Spain, be it in France itself you know and and civilize the country because he carries that urban middle class Italian culture with him through his whole life.
1: One of the things I was uh, noticing though is not just that it's his father, but the entire family has a, a heritage almost within the law.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, well, If you go right back um, to when they first came, both branches of his family, um, you know, because of course it's not just the Bonapartes; it's his mother's family too. They, they were actually mostly soldiers. Um, they came as sort of, um, soldier adventurers to help tame and conquer Corsica. But within a few generations, the Bonapartes have taken up the law. You know, they're quite well-educated people in the main. Um, his uncle was a very prominent lawyer. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it, it runs right through the family. They're very prominent in local government, in um, they're not the most well-connected family on the island by any means. His mother's family, the uh, I mean, Raminino, you know, they were, um, you know. But, but yes, it's it's very much part of their tradition. They come from inside the walls of a show where the Corsicans of the mountains, who they call the Insulars, you know, are not allowed to own property, not allowed to live. Um, and this whole business of you know of, of, of working through the law obviously finds its greatest manifestation for napoleon when he becomes ruler of france first first consul and then emperor and it's expressed in the 1804 civil code that rightly bears his name the code napoleon he himself was not a lawyer he was a soldier he had no legal training but he understood its importance and he managed to bring about in the space of about 3 years something the french revolutionaries had been trying to do since 1789 and that is to put together a lucid, coherent, concise law code for the country. And he chairs most of those meetings himself. He very seldom intervenes. But he chairs most of those meetings because he is determined, I think, to to set law and the rule of law at the center of his regime. And that must um, come from his father.
1: And yet um, you write that uh, you know, he he leaves Corsica uh, at a young age to attend military academies, and you write later in the book about how he ultimately came to despise uh, that not just not not so Corsica per se, but the entire Catholic Mediterranean world.
0: No, I think you have to be very careful there. That's not quite what I say. Um, he despises that part of the Catholic Mediterranean world which, say, is exemplified. By the Corsican interior, by the insults. Um, he certainly has a real contempt, I think, for popular Catholicism and a real suspicion of the church. Uh, and that is manifest in his, in his very difficult relationship with the Pope, which, in a, which ends in excommunication, um, in, in 1810. But in 189, I should say. But, um, don't forget too. I mean, it, this this doesn't come out of anywhere. His father and most of his uncles were Freemasons. He's brought up in a very secular environment. Um, interesting. Even his cousin Joseph Fesch, who enters the church and becomes Napoleon's right hand man as a churchman, I mean, he, he becomes the, um, the 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 Cardinal Archbishop of Lyon, which of course is the senior see in France. It's like Canterbury would be in England uh, for the Church of England. I mean, even Joseph Fesch's father was actually a Swiss Protestant and a Freemason, along with Napoleon's father. So, you know, this is, this is a certain part of Italian urban culture, which is naturally suspicious of the church and drawn first to Renaissance humanism and then to the Enlightenment, and he's part of that. But obviously when it comes to ruling over large populations of Catholic peasants, when it comes to looking at the church of an institution, there's a very profound contempt there, but he comes by it honestly.
1: It sounds as though in many ways he's primed for a lot of the uh, strains of revolutionary politics.
0: Well, I'm not so sure. He, he rises to the challenge. Um, You've got to remember that the most fundamental influence on Napoleon all his life was the army. you know, he was at a military boarding school from a young age. he loved it, he took to being a soldier um It was the center of of his personal development obviously he inherits these very important things from his family, but the most important thing for him was the army and therefore he he's very sympathetic and indeed very much on board um to the, to the revolutionary cause the idea of the, the doing away with privilege, of the career open to talent the, the, just the, the chance for sheer ambition to rise and talent to rise in France is very much a part of him and it also is hopes that under this new regime under, under a, you know, a revolutionary parliamentary regime, Corsica will cease to be treated as a colony and will be seen as an integral part of France. All of that and yet he is sickened by the mob violence he happens to witness in Paris. He's there actually on, largely on family business in August 1792 when the monarchy is overthrown by the armed sections, the armed people of Paris. And he is, although he's quite happy with the result, he's sickened by the process. He, he leaves a very vivid account. Of you know really how repelled he is by the mob as he as he as he as he calls it, um, and so you know he has this very complicated relationship to the French Revolution. One of the marvelous things in the correspondence is he writes a number of letters um, to his older brother Joseph, um, to his cousin uh, Joseph Fesch about. How he sees the revolution playing out in the Burgundian countryside, um, where he's then posted, and, and it, there's a prophetic letter, um, really, that I, I tried to analyse in some depth. Um, that, that, that I came across that, that we haven't known of before, where he, he, he's saying, "Now look, you know, if we don't get a grip on this, if we don't begin to restore order, if we don't." achieve some kind of structured code of law, um, some sort of structured way of negotiating these problems, and above all, if we don't impose some kind of powerful central government on France, we're going to lose everything.
1: It's prophetic. How did he rise to the point where he could do this? I mean, he starts out at the beginning of the revolution, he's a Junior army officer. Mm. How does he reach that point where he can you know achieve that? What's his progress during the revolution?
0: Well, it's not a straight line. You know there's some um, if you look at his uh, career in the revolution um, from 1793 till he really becomes when he really becomes active until he becomes the head of the French state in 1799 um, You wouldn't have bet on it. Let's put it that way. It's anything but clear um, I think there are two main points to make to this um, Napoleon's rise was meteoric in the end but he was not alone he was part of a cohort of men all roughly the same age um, who emerged from the ranks of the royal army um, You know, to become leaders he was the one who made it to the end you might say um, his early military career is patchy he first comes to people's attention, particularly to the attention of a guy called Paul Barra, who's an aristocrat turned revolutionary, um, who's sent down by the government in Paris to be a kind of political commissar um, when the revolutionary army is besieging Toulon. Toulon's the, the major French naval port on the on the Mediterranean um, it then is now. And it rebelled against the revolution and it allowed the British in, you know, so Toulon's full of the British Navy and the Royal Marines. And Napoleon's one of the team that has to dislodge them, and he does so. As a very, very gifted artillery officer, very good commander of men, this is when you really first see him emerge. And Barat, you know, spots him as having real talent. But then that revolutionary government, which was Robespierre's government, and it was Robespierre's younger brother, Agustin, who was in charge at Toulon. He spies Napoleon, too. When Robespierre goes down, Augustin goes down, and Napoleon really he's under house arrest, and it, it, it's a fair bet he'll be guillotined like everybody else. He manages to get out of it. Um, so but he has to lie very low in the army for a while. you know, he's quite low-level posts. Um, he's kind of revived when he puts down a royalist rebellion in Paris in 1795. Um, at the behest of the new government, of which Barra is is also now a part, Barra is a kind of great survivor of, of of this period. It's Barra who introduces him to Josephine because he Josephine is Barra's mistress, and he's trying to get rid of her. He, <laughs> so he dumps her on Napoleon. Now it's but it's quite interesting that it through Barra, in 1796, after a very lean period. Um basically sweeping out the office in in the Paris or the Army's Ordnance Department of Paris. Napoleon, through Barra's connections, gets made commander of the Army of Italy. Italy's a sideshow. The main front of the war is being fought in Germany and Switzerland to a certain extent in what is now Belgium. You know, Italy's a sideshow. But that's his big break. And he never looks back.
1: Could you uh, in your book you really posit Italy as pivotal in terms of his uh, political development, in terms of his emergence, not just as a military leader, but as a uh, governor, as a uh, as a politician. And I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate in more details what was going on and what made that period so pivotal.
0: Yeah, this is absolutely crucial for Napoleon's life, in my opinion. Um, it's why I was drawn to it study in the first place. After a series of, of you know, very, very striking military campaigns, by 1797, um, he's basically won the war in Italy, and he's dislodged the Austrians from the two provinces of Italy that they ruled, Lombardy, which is the area around Milan, and an area that's now called Emilia-Romagna around Bologna, which actually belonged to the Papal States. And he managed to prise them away and kick the Austrians out, make an armistice with them. But what is unique now, there are a lot of other generals, I should say, doing the same kind of thing for France. Um, Moreau, who's probably the greatest general of the period, um, is winning stunning victories in Switzerland and stunning victories in southern Germany. Osh, who's Napoleon's great rival and friend, you know, Osh used to go out with Josephine at one point. They're great friends. They're great rivals. They're very different guys. Osh basically kicks the French out of the Rhineland. Kicks them out of the the, the area of, of what's now Germany, west of the Rhine. They they all have the same opportunities in Napoleon, but he's the only one who knows what to do with the country he conquered. He creates what they call a sister republic. It becomes known as the Cisalpine Republic, which is the Roman name for that region. And he he creates a constitution. He actually does it by essay competition. You know, right in. Write in, your idea for a constitution of the Alpine Republic and you know win 500 dollars kind of thing. And it anyway, very
1: de- democratic, it at least in It sounds very democratic at least in. period.
0: That's what it looks like, And he actually chooses the one he chooses because it favors the most centralized form of government.: and, <laughs> and the structures he creates, you know, the elected assemblies he creates, the executive he creates, they all superficially look like the regime in France. But he is actually the guy behind the scenes, quietly, making appointments, looking at shortlists, asking advice about, you know, the right people to appoint. Um, He sets up a court, basically, at a place called Mombello, which is now a lunatic asylum. All his family come down um, to stay with him. But what he really is doing there, he invites everybody who's anybody in Italy. You know, scientists, writers... Um, you know, intellectuals of all kinds, politicians, to talk to him, to get their ideas, using this as a brain's trust. Um, But what he also does, and I think this is the most remarkable thing about him, and I don't know where he gets this ability from. There's no indication of it in his previous life. He can make people work together with him, who hate each other. He's two right-hand men in Italy. One is an, is an aristocrat um, from, from from Milan, uh, Melzi Derrile, and he was he worked very much with the Austrian Emperor Joseph II, a, a reforming emperor. So he's a man of very enlightened ideas, very progressive. But you know, he's he's part of the elite. And the other guy who he will really stick with to the end is a guy called Aldini from Bologna, who is a radical pro-French revolutionary lawyer. You can imagine they wouldn't get on, and they never like each other, but boy, they work with, well with him. And he does that over a whole span. It's the first sense of a pol- twin policies that he will introduce when he becomes ruler of France. One is called amalgamation, and that's making people like Melzi and Aldini work together. The other is a wider thing called ra- rallying, primal, that's in a way very reminiscent of, of de Gaulle after the war. Put all the past behind you. Put the quarrels of the revolution behind you. I'm not asking you to get on with each other. Just play by the rules and accept me. And accept the regime and we can all get on. And you first see it at work in Italy. But he knew what to do with the country he conquered. People like Osh and Moro for all their qualities as soldiers didn't have that gift of how to be a ruler and above all how to do it quietly because the government in Paris doesn't see that side of him. You know, they see the all-conquering general, and they see this general maybe getting a little bit too big for his boots with his palace at Mombello and that kind of thing, but they don't see the statesman. They don't see the politician, and that's what sets him aside from all his contemporaries because guys like Moro, guys like Gosh, they're very young men too, and they've risen through the army very quickly, in fact, faster and more successfully than Napoleon,
1: but they don't have that gift. And so he has this triumph in Italy, and as you write, it was uh, not just a military triumph, it was a, a diplomatic one, one that was more impressive than what his political superiors were achieving in other, in other regions. Yes, that this is something
0: that comes to the attention
1: of the Directory, which
0: is the government in France, that's what the executive is called, and where they do become suspicious of him, and that's in foreign policy. You know, he negotiates his own armistice with the Austrians. And he negotiates the territorial reorganization of northern Italy and he does it himself without reference to the government. You know, and there are people there thinking, um, I think we better get this guy out of here. We better move him to something else. And he is recalled back to France in 1798 and subsequently sent off to Egypt. You know, that side worries them. They do see the diplomat. Um, they do see the soldier who is actually himself capable of negotiating with a major power like Austria, and they sit down taking seriously the Austrians and coming up with a solution, none of the other generals can do that, and that is something that catches the eye, and that is the real reason why they pull him out.
1: So do they send, does he go to Egypt as a form of exile or a sense of he's a person who could really achieve things uh, in, in a variety of different fields?
0: I think the government's main aim was to get him out of the way to be honest I mean he is seen as someone who is in that sense politically ambitious although they they don't really as I said before understand what he can do as a manager what he can do as a statesman but they do see this as somebody who obviously um you know has got off the leash and is you know um has gone too far and I think that's part of the reason they send him Um, But there are other people um, in the French government, the foreign minister, Talleyrand, who will be his collaborator, um, well, not his right arm, but perhaps his left arm, for a very long time. Um, And he sees something in Napoleon, because Talleyrand has a a view of Egypt that we're not just going to seize this for strategic reasons. We want to turn this into a French colony. And Napoleon seems to be the kind of chap who could do that for us, among all the generals. But there's a consensus for different reasons that we need him out there. And the government's very glad to see him off.
1: I was wondering if you could speak a bit now to what was going on in Egypt. The the, the whole uh, the, the military side, what he tried to do in terms of government. I mean, how successful was he when he got there?
0: He was a disaster. Um, the When you look at it all in all, um, someone less politically adroit would not have come back from this. Um, he he wins a very spectacular victory over um, what, what we might describe as a third world army, the mamluk cavalry underneath the pyramids, and it is the stuff of legend. You know there are paintings of it. He hypes this in France that you know he won this great spectacular victory, and it just about ends there. He manages to seize control um, of Lower Egypt uh, and establishes his capital in Cairo, but while there. Um, he proves as insensitive and, and um, difficult a ruler as he was successful and well attuned in Italy. Um, he thinks he understands Islamic culture; he doesn't. You know, um, the Egyptians have very different ideas, say, about um, about the law, about justice, about what is a, a fair civil administration than he does. He cannot grasp this overlap between Islam the religion and the civil state and how they permeate each other. Um, He really has no idea how to deal with Egyptian culture. This brings out the other side of him. You know, this is the imperialist, the cultural imperialist. What we'll do is basically bring in French style reforms and they're bound to go for this. And of course, they don't. He's faced with a lot of revolts. He leads a disastrous campaign. Into, into Palestine and Syria, from which the army just about limps back in one piece. And I mean, you, you know, by 1799, he, he effectively abandons his army. He slips away in the middle of the night, uh, you know, back to France um, to try and salvage what he can of, of his career, really to get there at the time when his propaganda machine is portraying Egypt as a great success, before the truth actually catches up with it. You know, in the age of 24-hour news, there wouldn't be a Napoleonic career. The bad news would have got there that the whole thing's gone terribly wrong. The British sink his fleet, you know, so the army's cut off. And it takes a long time, actually, for the military commanders he leaves behind. Um, to, You know, it um, takes a long time for him to mend those fences because they've seen the worst of them. The military incompetence. Um, the fact that he was a very cack-handed civilian ruler in Egypt, um, you know, that this brings out the dark side, um, the, the, the lashing out, the atrocities committed, um, which are not his way of doing things. Um, you know, this brings out a dark side of him um, that he, he does put behind him very quickly, but only by running away.
1: In and in some senses, he fails upward right into the seat of power. I beg your pardon? He fails upward, he, right into the seat of power. He goes from Egypt within a very short period of time. to it, being.
0: Again, this is not a clear transition. Um, he comes back to France in 1799 at a time when, however badly he's done in Egypt, it's out there. Nobody knows the whole truth. All the other French generals are facing dreadful reverses against the allied Austrian and Russian armies. Osh is dead by now, Osh dies in 1798, that's one of the best commanders gone. But for the first time in about five, six years, it looks like the war is actually going to be fought within France itself. All of Italy has been lost, everything Napoleon's done has been lost. They've been thrown back in Belgium, they've been thrown back in Switzerland and Germany, it's looking really grim. And there's a crisis. And at that time, that leads to a political crisis within the French political establishment but uh, the, an argument comes back um, from, the, from the left of French politics that well we need to go back to the terrorist government, the terrorist measures of people like Robespierre because they, would, they that was the kind of thing, that was the kind of regime that turned the tide five years ago when we were in trouble. Now obviously the mainstream does not want that but what a group of politicians really at the, at the center of power come up with is the fact that we've got to take these Jacobin ideas on board. First of all, we need a much stronger executive than the five-man rotating executive we've had up to now. We need three men, they call them consuls. One of those three has to be a general. In fact, the first person they turn to is Moro, the most successful general. And Morrow says, look, um, you know, I'm not a politician, I'm a soldier. You know, I, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want involved in this Bonaparte shaman. And the reason they actually turn to Napoleon, many of them, is not just Osh's recommendation, but Napoleon's the least dangerous. If someone like Osh or, say, the other big military commander of the time, Massena or Bernadotte, are there at the front with their armies and they're brought into the government um, and they fancy a grab for power, They've got an army at their back to do it. These guys are all steeped in Roman history. You know, and they know that sort of most Roman emperors are generals who bring their legions into Roman seize power. Napoleon doesn't have any legions. He's, he's lost it back in Egypt. So in that sense, he's harmless, and they're right. But then once he is in as one of the three, and the clue that they that seize power in Brumaire which is called after the Revolutionary Month in late November when they do it, um, is a touch-and-go affair. But the minute he's in power, this is when he shows the side of himself that's been realized in Italy a couple of years before, the side that none of them realize. He maneuvers a lot of the, the old revolutionary politicians very carefully and gently out of the way, very quickly gets himself made first consul and then consul for life. It's only when he's on the inside And he's able to show his skills as a statesman. And really, as a chairman of committees and a a, a very quiet operator, he reveals those skills. And of course, nobody's waiting for this. Nobody expects this. Nobody really understands what he's done until it's too late.
1: And here he draws a lot upon. He starts drawing upon his experiences in Italy and in Egypt and begins to reshape the government
0: very much so he has very clear ideas in his mind about how the french government has to be reformed the, the revolutionaries have laid a lot of the groundwork for this and he builds on it you know he's not he's not starting from scratch but he comes up from top to bottom with a number of innovations the most important of which is the council of state which of course still exists in france and indeed in most european countries it's it's not the official cabinet it's a kind of a brains trust of experts um, you know, who, who are brought in for specific issues and their job is to help frame government legislation and also to test the viability of any legislation that's presented, um, you know, in the elected assemblies or by the executive. Um, and it's completely his idea. No one really knows how he came up with this or you can see it in embryonic fashion in Italy a few years before. That's a big innovation. He puts at the head of every French department, which is like the equivalent of a county, he puts a a figure called the prefect, who is appointed by the executive on the recommendation of the Minister of the Interior and is in charge of all civil administration in the department. We don't have any equivalent for it in the Anglo-Saxon world. It's very hard to explain to my students, but (laughs) you have it all over continental Europe. Everybody turns to it. There have been embryonic things like this before the revolution, but no one's turned on it before. The other huge innovation among many is the creation of the gendarmerie. And that is a a military police force drawn from veterans of of the revolutionary wars. There are plenty of those guys around, of course, because the war has been going on for about eight years, who are dedicated to policing the countryside, disseminated in six-man brigades. They're a bit like American state troopers, except they're run from the center, you know, not from, an individ- from a region um, and that means when they get off the ground these guys are veterans, they're well armed, they're under military discipline, they, li- they live in barracks apart from the local community but when say the great civil code is created, when he needs to impose taxation or conscription, it means the state has teeth that can do that but there are a massive other things as well, he gets higher education up and running again in France. Because before the revolution, all university education and most secondary education was funded by the church. The revolution confiscated all the church revenues for the state, and it collapsed. There are no high schools or universities in France until he gets going. One of the first things he does is, of course, he creates the lycée, and the system of state examinations that go with the lycée that's still with us, the baccalaureate and later eventually recreates the university, never mind the code. You know, he, he, he consolidates the metric system. He puts the finances finally on an even keel. His finance minister, Godown, who's one of the great unsung heroes um, of the Napoleonic period, this is the guy who creates the franc and stabilizes it as a currency. And it doesn't have to go undergo major reform until the 1920s. It's quite a time. And the most no. important—sorry, th- no, go ahead. The most important thing is that this all happens in an atmosphere of peace. You know, it, it's—you know—we obviously think of Napoleon as a great warlord, as a great commander, but it's very important to remember that of the 15 years he spent as ruler of France, one third of that time was a period of complete peace on the continent. Very soon after he comes to power, and when both he and Moro go on to win a string of important military victories against the Austrians and the Russians, everybody including the British, comes to the conference table at a town called Amiens in northeastern France, and from there is hammered out a series of treaties which brings complete peace to Europe. Now, the peace with Britain breaks down within eighteen months, but that war that, that begins again in 1803 really is um, is sort of the elephant versus the whale. You know, you, you I'm big and tough, but you can't get at me, and I can't get at you. You know, it's fought at sea, it's fought in the colonies. He is at peace with all the major powers of continental Europe until the autumn of 1805. And that is the period that allows him time to drive through all these major reforms. And he uses that period of peace um, with amazing creativity. It, it's quite a tale to tell. It might in some ways to some readers be the most boring part of the book.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: Compared to the early adventures, the later military conquests, and you know, the, the tempestuous relationship with Josephine and that. But it's probably the most important because he always said, these are the reforms that will survive me, particularly the civil code. These are the things that will survive me and will really be my legacy, and he was
1: right. Not to mention they serve as a foundation for, as you describe in the book, the machine that subsequently goes and exerts so much influence over Europe. Indeed. Wherever the French conquer under Napoleon,
0: um, the whole of Italy, um, most of Western and Central Germany, and even places that are ruthlessly opposed to them, like Spain, will. essentially adopt the essence of the Napoleonic system of government, sooner or later, almost everywhere in the continent does it, and it's obviously something I don't talk much about in this book because it ends in 1805, but I think it's very important to remember that these things survive him, not just in France, but elsewhere, and it makes it possible when the dust is settled after 1945 even after all the dreadful unspeakable things that have happened um, to the european continent when the embryonic european union starts to be put together the politicians the people may still harbor hatred and suspicion towards each other but when it comes to very brass tack things like how we cooperate over in, you know, reindustrializing Europe, how we cooperate over rebuilding Europe. Officials from Germany, from France, from the Benelux countries, from Italy, from Central Europe too, when the Iron Curtain comes down, finally all know how to talk to each other on the very practical level of administration because they're under more or less the same law code. They work more or less through the same system of administration, you know, and they can deal with each other on a day to day level. An incredibly informed way and that goes right back to what we're talking about now
1: in many ways Europe would not be the unity it is today without Napoleon Bonaparte
0: it wouldn't be as easy in practical terms now i mean it might have come about a lot more easily if we left the the, the warfare out of it you know and 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 the antagonism that you know these wars obviously spark and linger you know right up to 1945 politically I think Napoleon's career makes it much more difficult. But once he's gone, in very practical terms, his civil reforms and particularly his legal reforms make it much easier for Europeans to understand each other and work together. Yeah.
1: So, tell me, how's Volume 2 coming along?
0: (laughs) Well, um, I've I've unfortunately been ill, I had to have major heart surgery. in September 2014 so it slowed things down a bit but um we're about yeah we're we're getting to 3 quarters of the way there it's going up to 1812 volume 2 it's 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 the, these are the big years 185 to 12 this is the conquest of europe this is the bit that sort of everybody knows and loves <laughs> um and is it, we're, yeah we've got him um we've got him I've just got him divorced from josephine And uh, trying to sort himself out and get remarried to Mary Louise. uh, And I've got him excommunicated um, by the Pope. So we'll take it from there. He's got a few family problems to sort out because before he gets
1: back in the saddle. (laughs) Well, I have to say, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to reading volume two, as I'm sure many other people are. We've taken up a lot of your time and... So I want to let you go, but I want to say that uh, thank you very much for being uh, on our show today. I really enjoyed it, and uh, take care, and I hope you have the best of health and uh, that uh, Volume 2 goes swimmingly.
0: Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure in every way.